This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. The theme for today's talk is happiness. In the Anguttarinakaya in Book of the Ones, it says, No other thing do I know that brings so much happiness as a developed and cultivated mind. A developed and cultivated mind truly brings happiness. Everyone wants to be happy and to be free from suffering. In fact, so much of what people do day in and day out is basically around this basic wish to be happy. And wanting to be happy is not a problem in and of itself. The problem arises when we limit happiness to that very narrow scope of sensory stimulation. And then we miss the possibility of a joy that is independent of physical conditions. Buddhist teachings have a reputation for emphasizing suffering. You know, the first noble truth is dukkha. And certainly it's essential to understand suffering, its cause, its end, and the way to its end, which are the four classic noble truths. However, the Buddha understood suffering within a context of happiness. He taught his disciples how to recognize and how to cultivate the most trustworthy kinds of happiness. We find the Buddha depicted and described in the early discourses as being a very happy person. He lived content, at ease, carefree, with a fair amount of humor about human foibles. His joy seemed to be independent of physical comfort. It was unshaken, even in the face of abusive language. There seemed to be a joy that was available in times of hardship, illness, injury, and famine that pervaded periods of solitude as much as society. And his community seemed to share in that expression of joy. One time, King Pisenity visited the bhikkhu community, and he said, Here I see bhikkhu smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, etc. He described a very happy, contented scene. The Buddha's teachings are significant in terms of happiness because he extends happiness well beyond the realm of physical pleasures to harness an intelligence that's embedded in the basic wish for happiness the Buddha taught in the Diganikaya, Discourse number 21. There are two kinds of happiness, the kind to be pursued and the kind to be avoided. When I observed that in the pursuit of such happiness, unwholesome factors increased and wholesome factors decreased, then that happiness was to be avoided. 
when I observed that in the pursuit of such happiness, unwholesome factors decreased and wholesome ones increased, then that happiness was to be sought after. So we skillfully reflect. Does our pursuit of happiness lead to the development of wholesome factors or the perpetuation of unwholesome states? If the result is wholesome, then there's nothing to worry about. Go for it. Rest in that joy. Experience it fully. But we should seek pleasures intelligently. So while pursuing happiness, we can consider what happiness actually is. What really leads to profound happiness. And the Buddha presented a kind of hierarchy of three kinds of happiness. Carnal, spiritual, and that which is more spiritual than the spiritual. The carnal happiness is the happiness that's associated with physical pleasure, with physical comfort. It's bound by the five senses. These might be sights and sounds and tastes and touches that are described as desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. It's basically the stuff that most people like. In the Vedana Samyutta, it describes, there are these five cords of sensual pleasure. What five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. Sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, tastes cognizable by the tongue, tactile objects cognizable by the body that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on these five chords of sensual pleasure, this is called sensual pleasure. Though some may say this is the supreme pleasure and joy that beings experience, I would not concede this to them. Why is that? Because there is another kind of happiness, more excellent and sublime than that happiness. And then he asks, and what is that kind of happiness? And goes on to teach the jhanas. That other kind of happiness that is loftier and more sublime is the happiness which depends upon the development of the mind and in particular in the development of concentration. And so these might manifest through the attainments of the four jhanas or the four immaterial states. Because each level of jhana is characterized by sequentially more refined states of pleasure of happiness and bliss. Sometimes when jhana is mentioned, people worry. They're so committed to the Four Noble Truths, they worry when something pleasant is presented. Oh no, we're going to be perpetuating desire, we're going to cling, we're going to crave those pleasant states. But I really don't see people much clinging to jhana states. Sometimes when people first experience, it's true, they're a little bit over-impressed with some of the early stages of the development of concentration. But in this, pleasure is not the problem. 
anyone who's developing jhana within the context of the Buddhist practice, which implies right view, will soon enough realize the limitations, not only of sensual pleasure, but also the limitations of jhanic bliss. But it's natural to go through various phases in the development of our practice. When something is better than anything we've experienced before, sometimes we think it's the best thing ever, or the best thing possible, or the best thing in the world. And so when somebody has never known anything other than the narrow confines of sensual pleasure, begins to taste the experiences of the pleasure associated with the concentrated and developed mind, it's so much greater in comparison. It might even feel like one is flying high. But I don't think this is bad, and I don't think it's very dangerous. Because I'm happy when people experience something that is exponentially more wonderful than they've ever experienced before. We live difficult lives. Nobody gets through this life without dukkha. And a little meditative pleasure now and then is just not such a terrible thing. I say welcome it. I say enjoy it. But in the development of this practice, we do not stop with the development of jhanic happiness, of the happiness associated with concentrated states. The potential for joy is expansive, unlimited, when it's not restricted to the narrow confines of physical pleasures. But there is an unexcelled happiness that the Buddha speaks of, which goes beyond concentrated pleasures. He speaks of a joy that occurs when the mind is free, utterly free, of all desire, craving, and attachment. It's the unsurpassed happiness of the liberated mind. It's the joy of a mind that is free from craving, free from attachment, free from ignorance. It's the exquisite joy that accompanies the deep realization of Nibbana. Now, the feeling tone, the Vedana, of a path moment of a realization of Nibbana actually can vary. For someone, it might be marked by exquisite pleasure. For another, it might have a more neutral quality of Vedana, a a profound equanimity. But the feeling tone rather depends upon the mental state that preceded release. Whether it's more neutral or whether it's more pleasant doesn't matter because both are described as the supreme happiness of release. And so I want to review and go into some more detail about these three kinds of happiness, the carnal, the spiritual, and the happiness associated with release. Of course, at the coarsest level, we have sensual pleasures. It's not that sensual pleasures are bad or evil. It's just that they're brief. Very brief. They arise and pass away. 
In the Middle Link Discourses, The Way to the Imperturbable, it says, sensual pleasures are impermanent, hollow, false, deceptive. They are illusory, the prattle of fools. Though sensual pleasures might bring pleasant feelings, those feelings are inevitably temporary, unreliable. They can't lead to lasting happiness. So desire for sensual pleasures brings with it suffering. Because no matter how many pleasures we get, they're going to end. And the mind, if it's not well developed, if it's not steady and has developed insight, then that craving for more sensual pleasures will just enhance the defilements of craving. It's not bad or wrong to prefer a pleasant feeling over a painful one. It's a natural response to sensory stimuli. I think it's part of our animal nature. But it's not an effective strategy to discover lasting or profound happiness. Inevitably, what pleases us for a moment, an hour, a day, is going to change into something less pleasing or our preferences will shift or the situation will change. And to the extent that there is attachment to any sensual pleasure, we will be afraid, we will be insecure, we will sense the impending doom when it changes. You might have noticed this, that even when you're experiencing a pleasant sight, a pleasant smell, a pleasant taste, a pleasant physical sensation, back in the recesses of your mind, you know, this can't last. And so we can know this and we can reinforce this knowledge of the impermanent nature of sensual pleasures as we experience them throughout the day. Maybe you're enjoying a particularly pleasant shower, warm water on a cold morning. Or maybe you're experiencing a particularly delicious taste. How long can you enjoy it for? With that taste, how long can it stay in your mouth and still be pleasant? Try it. Try to keep it in your mouth longer and longer and longer and longer. It's going to get gross. <laughs> Experiment a bit with this. Find something in the day that you long for, that you lean into, that you rest your kind of like sense of, oh, if I can only get that, then I'll be fine through the rest of the day. Maybe it's, you know, a particular piece of fruit at breakfast or a a bowl of oatmeal or something at lunch, whatever it might be, or some special treat that you have. Resist the temptation to just wolf it down. And take a moment to really experience that slowly. Notice the whole experience of the way the mind responds to the taste or the whatever the experience might be that's pleasant. How does it lean into it? What aspects are pleasant and what other aspects 
are unpleasant that you might just not be noticing so much because of the view and the idea of, I like it. Take note of the changing experiences so that you can really observe the distinction between a pleasant sensory stimulus and the thought of craving or the commentary about how wonderful it is. Notice how mind and body thoughts and physical impact interact with anything to sustain our liking of it. And notice just what happens when you let the commentary go, when you let the concepts about how much you like this thing go. You'll probably discover that at a sensory level, it is utterly impermanent. The perception of it appears and disappears. The pleasantness appears and disappears. And whatever we think is pleasant also includes unpleasantness. There's a wonderful conversation recorded in the Middle Link Discourses in the shorter discourse on the mass of suffering. This is about a monk who already understood that everything changes. He understood that nothing would provide him lasting happiness. He was very diligent with his mindfulness and earnest in his meditation. Yet still, he found that thoughts of sensual pleasures obsessed his mind. So he knew better. He had the knowledge. He had the understanding. But his mind betrayed his quest for freedom. And he'd find himself again and again succumbing to fantasies, desires, reactions, a whole troublesome range of mental states called the three poisons, lust, hatred, and delusion. And so responding to this earnest monk's plea for guidance, the Buddha taught him. And what did he teach him? He taught him the pleasures of absorption, of concentration, the states of jhana. Because when we access jhana, we can leverage a knowledge of a higher happiness to help support the mind to turn away from coarser, lesser pleasures. It's said to abandon gratification regarding the sensual pleasures. It's very helpful to know a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from sensual delights. And concentration practice invites us to work with, to skillfully, intelligently work with this dynamic force of pleasure. Because each of the concentrated states of the four jhanas are characterized by specific kinds of happiness. The first jhana is described as having uh, the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. The second jhana is described as the rapture and happiness born of concentration. The third is described through the reflection of what a noble one declares to be, he is equanimous, mindful, one who dwells happily. And the fourth is described as a state which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and includes the purification of mindfulness by equanimity. Each of the four jhanas is more sublime than the next. Each is encouraged to be nurtured, to be cultivated, to be developed in a path that's 
oriented towards the end of suffering, we learn how to establish the mind in happiness. But then each state will be abandoned. Because when you know something better, or at least have an inkling that there's something better, then the seductive pull of those coarser pleasures will lose their appeal. In the discourse to Magandhya in the Middle Link Discourses, number 75, the Buddha describes his youth, his life before his renunciation, you know, when he was enjoying the five chords of sensual pleasure and he had various uh, palaces. They're described as being one palace for the rainy season, one for the winter, one for the summer. I lived in the rain's palace for the four months of the rainy season, enjoying myself with musicians, none of whom were men, and I did not even go down to the lower palace. So he's describing a lot of various sensual pleasures. But then he says, on a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sensual pleasures, So he's confronted sensual pleasures. He's seen how the mind deals with sensual pleasures. He's seen what sensual pleasures are and what their limits are. He says, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures. I removed fever for sensual pleasures. I abide without thirst, with the mind inwardly at peace. He says, I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with fever for sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures. And I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that. I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. Jhanas offer us, and concentration offers us, a means for freeing the mind from its relentless pursuit of sensual-based desires. With a concentrated mind, we can become saturated, drenched, filled with sublime delights. And then strengthened by the steadiness of that concentrated mind and wisened by the insight into the nature of pleasure, the mind finally lets go. When we're able to turn away from sensual pleasures, We won't miss them. We won't feel deprived. Just as the Buddha said, he doesn't envy them. We'll be preparing ourselves to allow the mind to find a more reliable place for rest, a deeper resource for happiness, a more peaceful and reliable spiritual happiness. For many people, before they've tasted a depth of meditative experience, before they've come on long retreats. They can't comprehend 
why anyone would come on a long retreat. And the concept of abandoning sensual pleasures is unheard of. And most people assume that it's going to be awful, that it's going to be some kind of asceticism or penance or just like painful, painful kind of practice. But the Buddha really taught this path as a middle way, not the extreme of sensory indulgence, but not going to the other extreme of self-mortification. It's just that most people have been conditioned in the world to look outward toward activities, towards possessions, towards consumerism, towards relationships as the primary, if not the only strategy for finding happiness in life. The problem is, I think we all know that it hasn't worked. At some point, I think we realize we were looking in the wrong direction for happiness. And then informed by that clarity, we've redirected our focus. That initial turning of the mind away from seeking sensual gratification is wisdom in action. And I think it's happened for every one of you here. Because if it didn't happen, I just can't see you signing up for a month-long retreat. But it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. Until finally, the craving really ends. When we stop, that exhausting race for sensual pleasures. We might taste a quality of happiness that we might call sweet relief. Just relief. We've shed a burden. We've allowed ourselves to rest. And it may develop, it may become refined to develop into what is called a delight and happiness born of seclusion as the mind becomes more and more concentrated. There's nothing to fear from this delight, from this happiness. It's a joyful experience. It's healing. It's an intrinsic quality of the concentrated mind. The first jhana is characterized as this happiness born of seclusion. Seclusion from the unwholesome states, the painful states of the hindrances. And the second jhana is characterized by a happiness born of concentration. That experience of concentration is associated with joy, with rapture, with pleasure, with bliss. The Pali terms are piti and sukha. And most meditators rather enjoy the arising of piti sukha, at least at first, because it can be very pleasant. But it may be that after a while, that energy of joy, although at first exciting and pleasing, eventually gets a bit wearisome. And the mind seeks something subtler. It's not that it hates rapture and joy. It's that it just feels like enough already. Thank you very much. And the mind inclines towards something quieter. 
the fading of piti might be quite gentle. And you might observe this stilling of the delight when you're no longer enthralled by it and the mind settles into an even more peaceful, even quieter experience of pleasure. The third jhana is characterized by a quality of happiness that is divested of delight that is associated with mindfulness and equanimity. It's a deep calm, a sense of joyful peace, contentment, pleasure. It's a smooth resting place for the mind, where the mind can stay steady with its meditation object, and it's easy to sit for long periods of time, because why get up when one is so very happy and content. But even this most sublime and pervasive joy is utterly unsatisfactory because it's conditioned and it's sustained through meditative intention and effort. We're doing something to attain it and to sustain it. And when we recognize that it too is unsatisfactory, unreliable and conditioned, then a genuine dispassion towards it develops. And this allows the mind to release its association with that pleasure. It's not a pushing away of pleasure. It's not an aversion to pleasure. It's not allowing ourselves to experience the pleasure. But when we deeply experience the undependable nature of even the most sublime pleasures, the enchantment ends. And in this sequence, the mind may then drop into an experience that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that's utterly cool, equanimous. This letting go that might be a letting go into the fourth jhana, I guarantee is not disappointing. Oh, I lost all that pleasure. Where did it go? No. The mind is so still, it's so quiet, that it drops into an abiding that though is characterized by a pervasively neutral feeling, we might describe it as equanimous, it is a sublime pleasure. There's no distraction, no internal, no external distraction. It's a state of profound ease. I think equanimity might be one of the most underrated qualities of mind. Maybe it doesn't serve the consumer economy so people don't speak about it very much in the world. Maybe it's just so subtle that often people don't notice it or dismiss it when it arises. Equanimity is not indifference. It's not a coldness. It's not a stoicism. Rather, an equanimous mind is profoundly balanced, so balanced it can take whatever comes in stride. When there's equanimity, we know what is. We know what's actually occurring. We know the past was as it was and the future will be how it will be. But with equanimity, we don't need to stay entangled in the dynamics of the stories 
of past, present, and future. We don't need to want things to be different than they are because this always puts us in conflict with life. With equanimity, we have the strength and stability of mind to know the reality of what actually is. Though deep equanimity might not have the exciting qualities of rapture, it may not have the pervasive joy of sukha. But the experience of deep equanimity will reverberate through every interaction that we have in the world. Uprooting suffering, dissolving the senseless struggle to control what cannot be controlled, to deny what is actually occurring. With equanimity, we discover that the mind is undisturbed by the basic fact that things change. They change from hot to cold. They change from bitter to sweet. They change from healthy to ill, from young to old, from what we like to what we dislike. This process of cultivating a more refined happiness, letting go of coarser pleasures, gradually frees the mind from that seductive force of always trying to get things the way we want them, maximizing our worldly pleasures. Because ultimately, the mind really wants to be free. The culmination of this practice is the happiness of insight, the peace of release, what this sutta calls the bliss that is more spiritual than the spiritual. It's a happiness beyond all conventions of happiness. In the Udana, it says, Whatever happiness is found in sensual pleasures and whatever there is of heavenly bliss, these are not worth one-sixteenth part of the happiness that comes with craving's end. Perhaps you will ponder the question, what is happiness? What is the potential for the profoundest happiness? At some points in the day, you might notice the mind as it grasps at some perception. And you might notice the mind when there is no grasping at all. When you feel that mind free from clinging, free from grasping, even for a moment, Let yourself fully experience that quality of ease, that contentment. Let that joy suffuse you, your entire awareness, consciousness from head to toe. Experience the joy associated with detachment, with release with letting go, with non-clinging. The happiness associated with non-attachment may be subtle, but it's so wondrous that it will make 
the pleasures associated with all the jhanas pale in comparison. In fact, the purpose for concentrating the mind and developing jhana is to strengthen and refine our capacity to let go. It's a practice of relinquishment. We learn to free the mind from even the most subtle and wonderful mental pleasures. And this release, this letting go, this detachment, this non-attachment brings forth an even greater bliss than might be imaginable, the bliss of release, the state of peace, Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.